This is All Things Considered on KNKX. I'm Ed Ronco. Seattle's Central District was a black neighborhood. Even as new arrivals and rising property values have pushed African Americans out, many who have stayed hope to preserve and grow the black culture that remains. A new development at 23rd and East Cherry is one such effort. Like a lot of Seattle's new construction, there's retail space on the first floor, residential upstairs, and its backers say they are trying to build Seattle's first anti-racist development, open to everyone as it embraces the idea of a robust African-American future. I visited the empty lot where the development will go with one of the architects, Donald King, and he schooled me on his Afrofuturist vision and how it applies to keeping his neighborhood, the Central District, a welcoming place for everyone. It's about being, uh, being in honor of Afrocentric and African uh, style, art, uh, dance, music, even film now, uh, has been leaning more towards an Afrofuturism, which means less of the past and more of the future. In a future where African Americans thrive, uh, where they are, there is true equity, there's true social justice, uh, uh, there's, there's a, a self-determination, of African Americans and an involvement in projects like this. Are there examples of this already in Seattle? There are examples of architects doing many of these pieces of things, not necessarily with an intention of being expressive of, of Afrocentric design. When I first moved to Seattle over 40 years ago, everything was beige and gray. Uh, I began introducing color in my projects, and it was a little bit radical at the time. Now, not so much. Uh, form and, and line and color has changed uh, dramatically in Seattle uh, on new projects. So they're already sort of accepting a lot of what I would say is more Afrocentric or Afrofuturist in, in, in their buildings. They're more lively. That has to be a delicate thing to do because you're... you're making things based on the tastes of what you know at the time but they're going to stand for decades and decades and you want you don't want somebody 20 years from now to be like well that was built in 2021 it, it is the risk of all architecture it yeah. is the risk <laughs> of all designers of architecture uh, and one of the things that we've looked at and have been fairly cautious on is you know what's going to stand up what's going to stand the test of time let's talk about this neighborhood yes. you've lived here remind me again you said how long I've lived here 35 years now. Tell me about the changes in this neighborhood over the last three decades that you've seen it. It was the largest black community in the enclave uh, north of California, north of the Bay Area. So it was very important. It was important for the people that lived here for their, their economic uh, growth, for their political growth and political impact, for their social gatherings which still happen, only people have to now drive 20 to 30 miles to get to their church or their social organizations. When I look at the block I live on, I would say when we moved in, there may have been two white families on the block. Now there's only two black families left. And we're seniors. It's turned on its head. It's turned upside down. How has there been pushback, or has there been able to be pushback? Well, you know, there's not a lot of pushback because uh, at first it began to move slowly. And it began with the individual sale of homes, individual transactions. Nobody really tracks that. Uh, the new projects that were built, um, 400 to 500 units of, of megablock projects, were built on property 
that hadn't been lived on before. So people weren't displaced by those buildings as much as that they created such a large incoming population. It's harder to react to something when it happens slowly. It, it's harder to react. It's, it's truly the, the, the frog in the boiling water. Where it became noticeable for most people is when they see the new projects, when they see the change in the neighborhood, when they see different people in their neighborhood, uh, when they see the change in the restaurants. And their restaurant may have closed, but a new one may have been opened. That is not necessarily culturally oriented to, 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 to the people that have lived here. Those people who moved to Burien or, or Federal Way or Renton or wherever they, they went when they had to leave the city, do they come back? None that I know of. Will some they I know that yeah. want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, some um, aren't as happy where they are. Uh, they're spending more time on the road. They they no longer have a community that is close by, that is when w- within walking distance or a short drive. But they also don't have the community of affinity, which means that their gathering is less and less. Uh, they're gathering at churches. They may go to Sunday church, but they may not go to Wednesday church. Uh, They may not go to the political events that are held at their church or the social events. And uh, all of that starts to come with it. How does design empower a community? How how does design shape a community's sense of itself here? Design really means that the, the community itself, particularly those that have been less involved in, in determining what their, their environment looks like, can now have a say in that, can now have a say and put themselves and visualize themselves in the space. Many will call it black space. Many will call it uh, spaces that are, are acknowledging more of black culture. Uh, for example, I, I walk this neighborhood a lot with my dog. And one of the things I notice is porch, what we call porch culture, right? Which is something really part of African and African-American culture is that there is a uh, friendliness to neighbors sitting on the porch and talking talking to you as you go by. Many times you'll stop and you'll have a small conversation. Unfortunately, I didn't see any of our new neighbors sitting on their porches. uh, And they have inherited many of the homes uh, of African-Americans that had very active porch life. I read that the developers call this the, the, one of the first uh, truly anti-racist mm-hmm. development projects in Seattle. Yeah. Can you explain a little more about that? It's more about the process and who's engaged in making decisions on the project uh, that is outside of the norm. And even though this was a primarily African-American neighborhood that is no longer that, uh, there is still not real involvement of African Americans in projects uh, that are, are at a high level. Here we have people of color and we have black uh, partner in the development, uh, black architect and lead design that hasn't happened anywhere else. It's a building of inclusiveness. And the inclusiveness part of it means that European Americans... API Americans should feel just as comfortable living here as living in a Eurocentric building that is most of our architecture, that is 99% of our architecture. And we're all expected to accept that as the norm. Uh, and and if, if you make the yardstick, then you measure what the norm is and what, what, what uh, people should be expecting. Uh, if you look at a different yardstick and you measure differently, 
you may wind up with something different. But more importantly, you've included more people. That's Donald King, one of the architects on a new development at 23rd Street and East Cherry in Seattle. It's called Acer House, and its developers are employing anti-racist principles in the project, including affirmatively seeking diversity in contractors and vendors. You can learn more about the project through our website, knkx.org. The location of this development is adjacent to the proposed Garfield Superblock another effort to make sure that neighborhood developments reflect the black culture that has long been at the heart of Seattle's Central District.